Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. In the Pew Bible, the Blue Bible sitting in front of you, that's on page 1009. As we turn to Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, may we remember and rejoice in knowing that these verses do not originate from the opinion of man, but that, but rather that they are the inerrant word of the one true divine and holy God. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is our helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we want to, in Paul's words, give ourselves up by your mercies because of what you've done for us in Christ, because we are changed and upheld, relieved and comforted in the love of Christ, because we are made whole by the love of Christ, because we're able to have fellowship with God because of the love of Christ. Because we have a hope that every single day, no matter how difficult and pressing our circumstances, pushing us to the very edge, sometimes of our sanity and our emotional stability, even then, all things work together for good. And he who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Lord, give us grace that we may expect good from you and that, Lord, because of our glad expectation, our being convinced of the love of God through Jesus Christ, that more and more we will radically give ourselves away in love, even as Christ has done for us. Lord, may we as a congregation give you that acceptable worship that praise to your name, that is a reflection of your very love. Lord, give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 
you, know, you if you want to be a smart aleck, um, someone asks you, what time does your worship service begin? You can say, well, it never ends. <laughs> of course, that will not get you friends or help bring anybody to the church. Um, but you'd be making a point that Scripture makes is that worship is 24-7. That your worship service, your giving praise to Christ, never has a pause. Never. Or never should have a pause. And that, as we talked about this very passage last week that talks so much about the horizontal, so much about the radical commitment to one another in love, that it is rooted in this statement in the chapter before, the end of the chapter, that we should offer up God an acceptable worship. And then he launches into love. Even later in the passage in chapter 13, he speaks in verse 16, as we saw, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have with such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, again, in the in the casting of Old Testament worship or the frame and form of Old Testament worship, instead of the sacrifice of some animal or even in this case, the sacrifice of Christ himself or the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving it's the sacrifice of doing good and sharing. The sacrifice of radical love. So we really do get to worship God all day long by his grace. And we are called to honor him in that way. And as I alluded to in my prayer, this God of infinite love that has expressed this love in the radical sacrifice of Christ. What does he long to see in the worship of his people? But a reflection of that very love as we show that love to other to one another and to to the world. That is an honor to him. That is a praise to his name. That is a reflection of all that he is so that we manifest the glory of God to the world. That's how we are a temple indwelled by the spirit that shows forth the glory of God. Now, in the Old Testament, when the glory of God filled the temple, the priests couldn't even stay there. When he filled the tabernacle, they couldn't even stay there. They had to, to leave. And yet in the New Testament, when the glory of God fills the temple, it draws people. It draws people to the worship of God as the glory of God is manifested in that love. So that is what we basically dealt with last week of showing how this is the, uh, the, the, the acceptable worship in the horizontal, acceptable worship in the horizontal. And, of course, we emphasize that it has to be rooted in this kind of worship. It's got to be rooted in the truth of God. It's the final expression of that truth lived out in our lives. We're not downplaying that truth. We're showing the final end and result of that truth in our lives. Minus that truth, there will be no love. Minus the death of Christ. No matter how much philanthropy is out there, there is no love of God being expressed by it. So we would be radical in both directions. It must be the truth spoken in love and lived out in love. So we want to deal then with the practical uh, commands that are given here. And you could structure it basically like this. Let brotherly love continue in the very first phrase and then the next two uh, commands 
showing hospitality to strangers, remembering those in prison and who are mistreated as an outworking of that brotherly love. So when he says to let this brotherly love continue, he shows you that I don't mean just in small ways, but I mean in the most radical way where your life is shared literally with someone and perhaps sacrificed for your brother or sister. Because in that context, he was speaking of Christians who were persecuted and imprisoned and ministry to them would mean a danger and a loss for you, possibly. It's rooted in what he's already said. If you'll drop back, you've seen this several times to chapter 10 and read with me in verse 32. He calls them to what they had already done in some years past. But even though they had, now that they're facing that situation again, they're being tempted to turn away and to, to leave Christ and to buy into the world's comfort and the world's acceptance at the expense of their faith in Christ. The verse 32 of chapter 10, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, when you came to know Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. You see, he's calling them to that which they had already done. You were partners with those when you weren't afflicted. Then you join with those who are afflicted. You didn't stay clear of them. Say, oh, I'm glad it's not me. It's just them. Thank you, Lord, for keeping me. No, you openly identified yourself so that you wouldn't be safe. If it meant media, if it meant feeding them and clothing them and visiting them when they were sick and in prison, you did it, even though they might say, hey, what are you doing here? He says, you had compassion on those in prison. Notice the result. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why do you think there was the plundering of their property? Because they had compassion on those in prison. He puts those together. I'm trying to show you and I'm trying to grab hold of it myself in my pathetic love. That when he says, let brotherly love continue, that's the kind of brotherly love he's talking about. And doesn't that love look just like Christ, who sacrificed everything, who lost everything, as we read in our opening passage? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, I'm safe. I'm here with the Father. I don't want to go and take on flesh and bear this horrible punishment and be subjected to a death uh, of crucifixion and, and such open shame and despising. No, it means I must love these people and rescue them and I'll sacrifice anything to do it. And as I've read this and studied it, I, I think, who could I call that could preach this to me? Because <laughs> um, I'm just undone by it. Because when you talk about this brotherly love, you see, it's the elder brother Christ who is not ashamed to call us brethren. That's the root of this brotherly love. It's that he was not ashamed, though we were sinners and though we had rebelled and though we had nothing to offer him. He was not ashamed to call us brothers. 
And so he became a brother by incarnation and he became a brother by redemption. It's a brotherhood created by Christ through his death. He's the source of it. And and we, we must understand that the brotherly love has to look something like that. Now, how far from that is that I'm just going to be an attender at a church? I'll, I'll sit in a pew and I'll hope he entertains me enough. I hope there are a lot of illustrations and have a few things to tuck in and live out that week or, or keep me from being too rattled during the week. But that's it. Don't want to get further involved. I don't want to be intertwined with people's lives. I don't want to you know, lose time and my hobbies and all of that for the sake of the people of God. Please don't push into my life. And brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this church. I'm, I'm amazed at the love of this church. But we all have to call ourselves to, to more. And certainly the American church doesn't look like this. And so many pulpits, it is, if not health and wealth, it's comfort and ease and isolation. And God will help you achieve all your goals. And the gospel is not one that keeps you in bondage. The gospel is something that sets you free to love. And the astounding thing is that Jesus... In chapter 12, we read, for the joy set before him, endure the cross. It is in his radical love that he is infinitely happy and satisfied. And that's what we don't get, you know. By protecting myself and isolating myself, I keep myself from all that would be involved in relationship. Yeah, you do. And all that is satisfying, all that is fulfilling, all that is enriching for you and for other people, all that God will do to liberate you, to look like Him, that's involved in relationship. And of course, our social situation is not exactly the same. For instance, when he speaks of hospitality, Really, for most of us, and this is good, it's having friends over. You know, that's our hospitality. And I'm not downplaying that. We need more of that. We need to open up our homes to one another. Uh, this hospitality uh, tended to be housing people who were uh, fleeing persecution or sometimes housing teachers and, and missionaries that were traveling with the gospel. Sometimes we have an opportunity to do that, don't we, with maybe a guest speaker or, or missionaries, uh, but theirs was more regular. It was more common. Uh, the inns were not good places for believers to be. And so people opened up their homes in, in radical ways and uh, opened their homes to people who they knew were believers, but maybe they had never met before. So I think we simply have to ask ourselves, how could I push out more to share what I am and what I have with more and more people, with people who are not like me, to invite somebody over that is perhaps not the normal person I would invite over. One of the great things about Christianity is it puts you in bed with all kinds of people. You know, know what I mean by that. It puts you together with every kind of person. 
And it gives us a wonderful opportunity uh, to love one another as Christ has loved us. John Owen, who has written a seven volume commentary on Hebrews. So I could be spending longer on Hebrews uh, <clears throat> than you may think I am. But <clears throat> Owen writes this. The love which is among his disciples is that whereon the Lord Jesus has laid the weight of the manifestation of his glory in the world. I love that. That's where he's laid the weight of the manifestation of his glory in our love for one another. It all rests, the the making known of his glory on our love for one another. Next to faith in Christ Jesus and the profession thereof, the life and beauty of the Christian religion consists in the mutual love of them who are partakers of the same heavenly calling. And this is interesting for this great theologian and Puritan John Owen to write this. In vain shall men wrangle and contend about their differences in opinions, faith and worship, pretending to design the advancement of religion by an imposition of their persuasions on others. Unless this holy love be again introduced among those who profess the name of Christ, all the concerns of religion will more and more run to ruin. The very continuance of the church depends secondarily on the continuance of this love, primarily on the faith of Christ, but secondarily on this mutual love where this faith and love are not. There is no church. And so John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whomever has been born of him. So, the word Philadelphia, or brotherly love, that is there, there is the love of of the stranger that is in the next uh, uh, passage, to love uh, those who are foreign to you. And it recalls Abraham, of course, and that he entertained uh, angels. And uh, many commentators have pointed out that this means, in general, that... uh, whether or not we actually entertain angels, the principle remains that we that blessings will be brought to us that we could hardly imagine as occurred to Abraham. That uh, as we give ourselves away, uh, so many graces will be given to us that we couldn't have even imagined. Here's an example of the way uh, they dealt with one another. In Romans 16, Paul writes and says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church at Kenkrai, and you that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for he, she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So an encouragement, of course, that they would embrace her and supply all of, of her needs. And in First Peter, when he gives the general command of love, it's very much like this. Peter says, above all, in chapter 4, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. To do it gladly, to do it freely, to do it because God has taken you in. He's created a refuge for you. A place in which you are embraced and loved and made secure through his blood. Just think of that. The radical extent to which Christ, in a sense, has shown you heavenly and eternal hospitality at the expense of his own blood. 
It's that kind of thing that goes behind Jesus then saying, will you open up your lives? Will you share what you have with others? Will you give yourself away to try to seek to soothe and comfort and take in my people as I have done for you? Same thing with prisoners. Uh, This, of course, was in the main a ministry to fellow believers who had been uh, thrown into prison. Uh, John Owen says it is far better, more safe and more honorable to be put in bonds with and for Christ than to be at liberty with a brutish, raging and persecuting world. And, of course, that means that they were to be thought of often with affection, to be prayed for, to be visited, to be supplied with food and clothing and other comforts, everything possible to uh, soothe the rigor of what they were going through. And I would encourage you to uh, go online to the sites that, uh, like the persecuted church, for instance. And there are multiple sites where you can begin to study and learn about persecuted Christians all over the world. And I ask you this question, have you given them a thought this week? Has your heart gone out to them? Have you imagined yourself in bonds with them or what it would be like that to have their home taken away? Or are you and I simply enjoying the comforts of our society, isolated, as though we have nothing to do with these people? They mean nothing to us. I have to admit, there are a lot of those weeks for me. And I believe the Holy Spirit would say to us, Remember those in prison. There are a lot of them in the world. There are a lot of people in different conditions than we are. I might have told you this before, but years ago, in the first church we were in, we had a fellow from India, and he preached on this passage on a Wednesday night. I'll never forget it. In that rich Indian accent, which I won't uh, trash by trying to do, but finally, brothers, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. This is a man who said, if they knew that I had eaten with you tonight, they would uh, break into my home and spread cow dung and, and wash it with cow urine to purify it from my uncleanness for having eaten with you tonight. And he was always in danger, always uh, could be hurt. As happened among you, then he says, that we may be be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. I never thought about that phrase until this man who was in the midst of it, who could be hurt or killed any day, said, pray for us. Pray for us. Now, he talks about love in this wide framework of Strangers and prisoners. But then he gets on the other side, the closeness of love. And it's interesting at this point because chastity or purity does not oppose love, as our society would tend to say. That we play down love and we don't enjoy love. But chastity and purity is a part of charity. It's a part of love. It is a part of the commitment of love. 
this Christ who has identified with us and whom you would think uh, would have not never signed up to join himself to our debt and our ruin. Uh, You can imagine a, a son who would resent the introduction of rival siblings that would share his inheritance. And yet Christ dies so that he may be able to share his inheritance with us. And so rooted in that is this committed love of God for us, this covenant love to give himself completely to us for our good. And he says about that, about marriage, that it be held in honor. And I want to join this uh, this talk about marriage to the very covenant love that God has for us. You know, in the early church, uh, Jerome was one of many uh, church fathers that uh, said that God basically just indulges our desires to let us be married. But the real holy way to live is to be celibate. They even would teach that sexual, that, that sin is unavoidable when you have union in marriage. So every person, this was the church's view, even within marriage that has sexual union, they sin every time that happens. But what are you going to do? How else are you going to get babies? You know, and, and at least it's not as bad as immorality would be, etc. Well, that's certainly not this passage. Let marriage and the marriage bed, literally it reads, uh, be undefiled. Let it be held in honor. And so the early church where God had said when he made man, it is not good that man be alone. The church had come along and said, it's not good that you said not good. As a matter of fact, be alone is better. It's the only way of true holiness. And so it was a demeaning of God's creation and God's uh, the marriage and, and the making of male and female. In fact, Paul says in First Timothy four, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You wonder, whoa, deceitful spirits teaching the demons, liars, their consciences are burned out. Who are these people? Here's what they do. They forbid marriage. Forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So, why? One reason why that it must be held in honor, of course, is that God made it. It is a good gift to be enjoyed. And all parts of it are to be enjoyed to his glory. But you'll notice here this, and you'll get this every time, practically, that immorality, sexual immorality is talked about in the scriptures. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. First, let's understand it doesn't mean he will judge anyone who's ever been sexually immoral or adulterous. Or many of us would have no hope. 
But he means those who practice without repentance, without struggle, without any desire and devotion to seek to please God. It's not talking about people who struggle at times or struggle for a long time over particular problems. But it's speaking of those who have turned their back upon God. They practice immorality without any regard for God and his authority. God will judge all sexually immoral and adulterous. You get that in 1 Thessalonians 4, Ephesians 5, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, over and over. And several times he says, do not be deceived. Those who practice such things will incur God's judgment. That really needs to be said in our day. Because we just keep bumped further and further and further along until we're comfortable with almost everything. Why is it so serious? At least one reason is because the sexual relationship between a man and a woman is a reflection of God's faithfulness in doing us good. It's not because we downplay sexual relationship. We exalt it to the highest. We think it is glorious beyond compare, as we do all of his creation. But sexual expression is an intimate, holy thing rooted originally in the character of God himself. It is the act by which we say to another person, I give myself to you wholeheartedly, without reservation, all that I am and I have, I pledge to your good forever. That is what it means. It's a reflection of God's covenant love. You see, we tend to think of just the marriage bond minus the physical as the reflection of His love. And that's one of our bad mistakes and bad misjudgments. No, the physical relationship is a vital part. It's really the central feature in Scripture of the expression of God's covenant love to His people. Because it speaks of union. It speaks of giving of yourself. It speaks of receiving. It, it is a dynamic picture of how God unites Himself to His people. And it's so radical in Ephesians 5 that Paul uses that very thing and says, Christ has become one with us. And he loves us because now we are a part of his body, just like it is with a husband and wife. The scriptures are, are, are not queasy about this. They speak openly about the glory and the richness of it. And so this act itself is by nature a covenant-making act. That's why when Isaac and Rebekah, she says, who is that? As she's been brought by the slave uh, back to Abraham and Isaac. And uh, he says, that's my master's son. That's who you're going to live with. And that's who your husband's going to be. What does she do? Do they date for six months or a year, you know, and... Uh, Eat restaurants and stuff like that. Well, no, she goes into his tent. They consummate. There you go. Now, not saying that should be our culture. Okay. (laughs) The pastor said. Um, But it does rattle our cage because you think she didn't know him and he didn't know her. But when they united, they made covenant with each other. There was no doubt what this meant. 
My life and your life are bound up forever. I give myself completely to you. I receive you completely to myself. You see, that's why sexual immorality, to minimize it and desecrate it, to say that in its passion and vulnerability and its all-consuming joy, it expresses what should be the joy of giving ourselves in love for life. But when we minimize that and desecrate it and pollute it, in the end by abusing a person with it, using it as a mere tool for pleasure with no regard for any lifelong love that we have for that person, then we attack the very character of God Himself. It attacks his goodness and commitment because he will not turn away from us to do us good. In that most intimate act that is to be a reflection of that commitment, we say, I will turn away from you. I'm saying it with my body, but you will not count on me after this night. It's a denial of the nature of God's love to us. It is a holy and glorious expression It is sexuality is full of the glory of God himself. He is enshrined in our very bodies a physical means of expressing his covenant love. That's how holy it is. To receive each other with all our weaknesses and blemishes. Wholeheartedly to give ourselves to each other and be vulnerable with each other. This is a reflection of the love of God. And as William Lane has said, sexual immorality is a rejection of the presence and goodness of God who created the human family in its maleness and femaleness. It is an expression of a selfishness blind to the emotional fragility, that is fragileness, that characterizes every person. So God judges it, brothers and sisters, because it is so unlike him. So unlike him in his commitment of love that he will not turn away from us to do us good. And I think this is what we need to teach our children. Some of us were raised in homes in which the only word we had attached to sex was bad. We need to attach the word good. Good in this context, good in giving yourself, good in what it means, good in what it reflects in God. And because it is so good, we must not abuse it. We must not misuse it. Well, I think I've run out of our time and your listening capacity, I'm sure. Um, Hopefully you see, though, in a common line in all of this, whether you're dealing with the stranger and the prisoner, or you're dealing with your own husband and wife, you're dealing with radical love, aren't you? Radical love. It manifests itself in so many different ways, but that's what we're all about. That's our whole life. Whether it's our family, it's our next door neighbor, somebody we work with, It's a person that's suffering pain on the other side of the world. We're called to the liberty and the joy of this radical love by the grace of Christ. Let us pray.
Oh Lord, I, I'm ashamed of how unlike Jesus I am. I'm ashamed, Lord, at how I want my comfortable life. I want to guard myself and make sure that my time is my own, even when so often it isn't. There still can be that resentment, as Peter said, show hospitality without a grudge. Lord, we find ourselves, sometimes we commit ourselves and we do things and and we really do spend ourselves outwardly and and yet we realize my heart is really not in this. I'm dry on the inside. I'm dead on the inside. I am not experiencing your presence and your joy in this. Lord, all we can do is to come to you and say, we are sinners. We are lost in ourselves. But Lord, we take We take comfort in what you said, that he who helplessly trusts in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We thank you that we can, with the the hymn writer, say, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That you raise us from the dead. You give us life when there is no life. You form love in us when there is no love. When we run into the brick wall, the end of where any kind of human capacity to give itself away, and it's very short in my life, that, Lord, your Spirit quickens us and you plant in us the very life of Christ. It is no longer I who live, as Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We are new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. Lord, you are our hope. Forgive us. Change us. Use us. Lead us in the way everlasting. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.